All right, guys, welcome back to the Wax Cast with your host, Gavin Wax. Uh, today's an action packed day for this uh, new show that I came up with about an hour ago. Uh, we already are on episode two. Thank you all for tuning into episode one with my good friend, uh, Vish Burra. I am now joined by another good friend of mine, uh, Nick Hancock. Nick and I uh, go back a few years now from some old weird libertarian circles. Uh, Nick is a writer. Uh, he also launched his own podcast of his own, which I'm going to let him uh, explain in a bit. But Nick, thank you for coming on and please tell us how people can find you. Well, first off, thank you, Gavin. Congratulations, episode one. Very high energy. You and Vish were fantastic <laughs> and inspiring to me, even though um, I feel like I'm on the same page as you guys. I don't. I shouldn't really need inspiration, but that was a real pick-me-up uh, show and just what you guys have been doing with the, the New York Young Republican Club. So, thank you. Thank uh, you. So, yeah, I'm at Hancock.com and my podcast is Come Home America with Nick Hancock. And actually, there's another little secret out there. There's another podcast I'm co-hosting with Jose Nino, the great Jose Nino. Good guy, doing good guy. A, yeah, that podcast is called Order and Liberty, and uh, it's in a soft launch phase right now. We're going to have some big uh, episodes coming up as well, but that's on YouTube at uh, Order and Liberty. But anyway, um, yeah, we we are uh, both starting off uh, our, our little podcast sort of around the same time. I'm only a dozen episodes or so in. And I look forward to having you on the show soon. But thank you for having me on first. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm glad we're doing it. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we uh, first came to know one, one another uh, through libertarian circles online, kind of followers of Austrian economics, the Mises Institute, that sort of shtick. And I think we've both evolved politically. Um, I'm a recovering libertarian. I still hold many libertarian views. I still respect a lot of the great thinkers and writers. Uh, I do love Austrian economics and I have a great respect for it. But when it comes to politics, uh, I've definitely shifted a bit. Uh, I consider myself more of a, of a conservative and a populist now. Um, but I still tr hold true to many different, you know, kind of uh, libertarian uh, principles. But I, I, I did want to talk to you about sort of the decline of libertarianism as a movement because, you know, a few years ago, I remember when me and you started to, to come into contact with one another, there was the Ron Paul movement, which was in many ways kind of precursor to the Trump movement. It was very populist. Mm -hmm. It was very grassroots. And it, ha it had a lot of uh, planks that now have been taken on by the Trump uh, populist movement, namely non-interventionism uh, being one of them. And I think a lot of libertarians could appreciate many of the foreign policy aspects of the Trump administration. But it seems like a lot of that energy, not just in the Ron Paul movement, but just broadly in the libertarian circles has kind of waded and died out uh, in recent years. And it's sort of now become even more fringe than it was before. It's not nearly as, uh, as um, dominating in terms of like the news cycle, in terms of just the online, uh, you know, just the online, what you see online when you go on, when you, when the different readers, the different, uh, you know, personalities, they've all kind of shifted. So what do you, what do you, uh, what, what would you blame for that kind of decline over years? If I'm correct in saying it has declined, I may be wrong, but I'll pass it off to you. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I think I would uh, just a little differently in the sense that like it can you can judge it in, in different ways from different perspectives, because not only was the Ron Paul movement a precursor to Trump's presidential run, but it was also um, seeding the ground 
in some ways for the the Tea Party. You know, the very first Tea Party in in 2007 was a Ron Paul event, and so even before it, it took on uh, the 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 wider movement that people know uh, by that name, and then of course. Even even uh, some libertarians bled into the Occupy Wall Street movement. And so, um, you know, probably much smaller on that scale. But just to talk about where the movement went, it just kind of became amoebic. And there was no longer the center of the movement around Ron Paul and his presidential campaign. But it was this um, uh, just an inspired young uh, movement of people who knew they wanted something different in the world, that the world is not supposed to be this way. And, you know, that was at this point now, 12 years ago. I mean, wow. it's, yeah. uh, we are old, right? But, <laughs> uh, no. So, so, you know, I, uh, I do take the position that you do that libertarianism has uh, declined. You can sort of make excuses like I just did for all these different avenues. People have taken it and, and little hot spots here and there where, where some success has been found. But, um, you know, what I'm really interested in now is is getting out of that uh, mindset that we were in 12 years ago, where the the ideas that fueled us were um, the left and the right are the same. It's a big illusion. The Republicans yep. and the Democrats are, are just all the same. And it's totally an illusion. And some of that still exists. Uh, yep. Some of that is still true. And, you know, we we can understand that. But at the same time, we know that the world is not the same place and it's not um, it's not the comfortable place. And so, you know, what I always, um, what I always wanted to avoid was falling into this overconfidence and over, you know, arrogance in the ideology and making the ideology, uh, make everything in my life fit through the ideology and to fit my personality and my, you know, every, everything that I do through the ideology of libertarianism, because it's that sort of arrogance that just blinds you yep. to the reality of, of the world that you're in. So, um, just saying those things can really upset um, the 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 least uh, the least productive libertarians out there will yes. be the most upset by that. But um, but you know what what happened with me was I you know largely um, personal factors of just growing growing up and becoming a husband, becoming a father, becoming a homeowner, becoming you know all of these roles you take on in your community. Um, you know, I, I converted to Catholicism, uh, just, uh, almost a couple of years ago now. And so all of these different things that just happened in my personal life made me, uh, cherish and appreciate more of the institutional bonds that we have. And as much as what drew me to libertarianism was a sense of, um, a sense of, you know, uh, appreciating society and people coming together and voluntary transactions and people helping each other out, um, this is also what uh, what I'm finding in my institutional growth and, and how it's uh, forming myself, my formation. It's helping me become a better person, helping me serve others in in uh, the world in a much bigger, deeper, more richer uh, way than just this um, online circle uh, jerk. Yeah, super a superficial idea of you know the free market or, or whatever you know yeah. sort of fundamentalism you have. I, I liked a lot of that and I couldn't agree with you more. I think kind of libertarianism devolved into kind of this bubble and it was this absolutism or nothing type of approach, which is fine if you want to engage in sort of just academic discussions. But if you did want to take an approach to advance those ideals through, say, politics or some other medium, you have to be willing 
I don't want to use the word compromise necessarily, but you have to be able to be practical and be able to sell things piecemeal. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at, you know, what's going on in politics today, um, the Ron Paul revolution was successful in basically mainstreaming a non-interventionist type of foreign policy. Neoconservatism is dead. It's way more dead um, than, than libertarianism. I mean, it exists in maybe some small corners of Bill Crystal's head, but for the most part, uh, it's been repudiated by the grassroots. And that's a big change over the last, you said, 12, even 20, 30 years. So, I mean, there have been successes in advancing some of those viewpoints, but I think what, what's happened is that libertarianism has kind of become lawbergism, which is like, I mean, you, you, you know the type of people, these like these lawbergs who are just sort of, they're absolutists, they don't want to concede anything, they don't want to be practical in any sense, and then they take on the worst possible positions uh, to die on. And many of those positions are not even necessarily libertarian. Like, I was never a socially liberal libertarian. I was always a pro-life when I still called myself a libertarian, I was always a pro-life libertarian. I always held some views that were still right of center. Uh, you know, you could have cons- described them as conservatarian, et cetera. But it seems like that, the, the branch that I used to adhere to, and I believe you also had some sympathies with, has sort of just kind of dispersed, merged into other groups. But then all that's left is this social left Lulbergism, which basically not only is open to, but openly embraces sort of this social degeneracy, this this cultural Marxism, this left-wing nonsense, SJWism, and they do it under this, this banner of libertarianism, which is so incorrect, one, and just also kind of just repulsive to many people who may have been open to some of those ideas otherwise. What do you make of that? Yeah, and I think that's actually part of the reason why we don't have to worry about them that much. I mean, yes, uh, we could lose the word libertarian, but what has happened to the word liberal? What has happened to exactly. even the word conservative? I mean, we we could lose these labels, and uh, what should we should we keep the labels and lose lose the actual value uh, behind them? So I'm not too concerned about. Uh, who calls themselves, you know, the real libertarian or, or, you know, all of that. But, um, you know, you call yourself a conservative now, you know, I, I don't know what I call myself now. I feel like this is such a fluid situation that we're in that the labels, we can't, we can't, uh, um, attach too much value to them, but we do want to, we do want to be clear in, in where we stand. I, uh, I might be a bleeding heart paleo libertarian if that's paleo, uh, okay. Yeah, because uh, and what I mean by bleeding heart is I just feel for these folks who were in the same place I was not too long ago. You know, I voted for Trump in 2020, um, but didn't know for certain that I would until probably last year. You know, um, it it, um, was something that was building up. I mean, in 2016, when Trump won, I couldn't wipe the smile off my face for days, (laughs) even though I hadn't voted for him and I hadn't supported. I just uh, I knew I was rooting for him in this anti-anti-Trump sort of sense in the way that Justin Raimondo yep. uh, put it. And so, um, you know, I, I over time grew to understand that Donald Trump was, you know, uh, this absolute force to, um, to be, you know, this force not to be underestimated and even to this point not to underestimate him. Um, and in 2020, I, I voted for him. I tried to get other libertarians to vote for him. And so what this brings us to now and not getting into all of the election stuff, um, Trump has a small chance of, of keeping the office and, and, uh, you know, we can do what we can, which is not much beyond prayer at this point. But, um, 
but in terms of Trump's relevance, in terms of what he means to the, the people outside of us, the people, you know, we're trying to reach, the people we're supposedly trying to convince with their ideas, that cannot be dismissed, hand waved away. Um, it's something that we have to uh, really, uh, really confront, even if it makes us uncomfortable or challenges us to change uh, in, in some way that does not really at the, at the fundamental point violate our, our principles, I would say. Now, a lot of things with libertarianism has also changed with this whole COVID pandemic. I think uh, we've never seen such a big resurgence of statism. I've never, I've, we've never seen such encroachment on liberties, certainly in our lifetime, um, and, and such a rapid expansion of government, um, basically, you know, being supported by both sides of the political spectrum. I know you talked about earlier both sides, you know, in, in old libertarian circle days being described as the same. I would argue there are there are a lot of differences ideologically. I would I would argue though that the heads of the establishment of both parties are kind of the same. Uh, the, the party structures are still the same. So from that, I would agree. But uh, how do you, how, what do you view the future then? I mean, uh, how do we come back from this? How do we uh, push back against the growing encroachment of the state? And look, I, I've changed my views on the role of the state. I still would never support, um, you know, what, what the left is calling for uh, and what, what the expansion of it has become. Um, I don't want people to basically live off, you know, the dole of the government through these stimulus programs. I mean, I could, we can make an argument maybe due to the fact the government has essentially shut down the economy at this point, you know, maybe they have a responsibility to cover them. But where do you see, and I also am curious, do you describe yourself as an anarchist or a minarchist? I mean, where do you stand on that front as well? Oh, sure. So, you know, I don't, I don't have any qualms about anarchism, you know, but this sort of gets into the Lulberg territory, doesn't it? Where we, yeah. can, we can really debate these things, but yeah, sure. Um, I, I am a Rothbardian libertarian and, so, um, yes, uh, in the final analysis, you know, do I push the, the red button to blow up the state and we have a stateless society? Yes, I, I probably can't resist. And I push the button, um, you know, regardless of the fallout that, that, um, could be destructive. But, but that's, that's sort of fun talk. Um, but in terms of my analysis of, of the landscape today, I do see, as you say, like the, the most statist environment we've ever been in. I mean, um, and no matter what metric you measure it, I mean, you can measure it by the M2 money supply. I mean, the, the absolute, um, recklessness of Congress, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, just, um, uh, borrowing and printing and spending into oblivion. We used to care about the debt. I mean, now Republicans care about the debt again, right? Uh, now that right. So that's the meme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, we, we, we have that to, to measure the situation that we're in. But even beyond that, you know, we can point to uh, the elites in some sense. We can say that the, the power elite have you know, robbed us of our birthright of self-government, you know, our Republican form of government, this, um, this tradition that's been uh, handed down to us from previous generations has uh, also been robbed in, you know, you can go back to whatever historical point you want, but I think the point is now, um, if we want to retain that, if we want to give our children something better to look forward to, uh, yes, you point much of the blame at those who are not just robbing us of that birthright that I talked about, but even 
uh, subverting our mediating institutions, you know, the, the, the fabric of the society that's now just been taken over by wokeism, been taken over by the same sorts of talking points that you hear on the Black Lives Matter website as you do from the World Economic Forum's Great Reset uh, policies. So all of that is what we're up against. And the real difficult part is even where I am now, uh, moving from Los Angeles, California to Northeast Indiana in Fort Wayne, even where I am now, I'm surrounded by lemmings. And, you know, over here, it's a lot nicer. They're not absolutely going to, you know, call you out. I have been called out for not wearing my mask or something. I have been called out in the grocery store one time. But overall, people are, are kind of cool about it. But I do see uh, really these um, these mask quizlings for the most part. Um, good word. Good word. You know, they're yeah, they're they're all around us and it's hard to tell, you know, if people are, are just doing it out of, um, you know, uh, compliance because they, they can't really risk, uh, being hassled that day. You know, we're all under a lot of pressure this year and on many respects. So it's hard to, it's hard to know exactly what's going on, uh, with everyone's minds, everyone, um, um, you know, trying to get over this election and move on with their lives as best as possible. But I get the sense that a lot of people are, uh, they want to sink their teeth into this statism and have more of it and more and more. And, and so we, we are at a point where, um, you know, Ron Paul had a, a, a paper, a, an essay out today on the crack up boom actually coming soon on the, the dollar uh, busting up or, or belief in the dollar busting up. Soon, soon. And, yes, yes, soon. And, and hyperinflation is coming. I want to talk about question, this in more detail, though. And the question is, is like, where do we go from that point? If it's not, you know, an absolute dollar catastrophe, if it's some other social catastrophe that comes up, you know, something that comes up that breaks up society so hard um, where we see some balkanization or we see some uh, zombie apocalypse, whatever it is, um, where where do we go from there? Is it guaranteed that we have nowhere to go but up from there? And maybe not. Maybe we're actually continuing to slide down further from there. So, you know, my point over all of this is that um, we we cannot be, uh, you know, we cannot be oblivious, aloof, and arrogant about the times we live in. And what matters now is your own well-being, your family, your community, and the attachments that bring you you know, um, meaning in your life and letting that really steer your politics, you know, um, the politics, your politics should be about securing the institutions that are going to um, protect society because the, the road we're on right now is toward total centralization. And, it, you know, you're not going to actually see, um, you're not going to actually see U.S. Marshals march in and take over your local church or, or your, your, your house of worship, whatever it is. But you do see the subversion in the in the major houses uh, of worship now in major churches across the country. It's all becoming woke. It's all becoming uh, a part of, the, you know, a part of the machine of global government. And so that's where the fight is in the institution and the and the local level um, on all of these uh, these points of um, of society, you know. Well, you may, you, there's a lot there to unpack. I mean, I want to tackle it. We'll we'll do a choose your own adventure type of thing. The first thing, 
is the obviously the money printing. And, you know, we've heard many people who've always followed people like Schiff and Ron and whoever it is, you know, for many, many years, we're told, you know, the balance sheet of the Fed rising to the levels unprecedented. This is going to create hyperinflation. We're going to lose our status as reserve currency. There's the velocity of money and most money that we make is either, you know, in, in balance, in digital balance sheets or it's overseas. And that's why we haven't seen the type of inflation, even though we have seen inflation, there is inflation, it's hidden, you know, they lower the quantities of goods that they that you buy for the same amount of money. And then prices of some sectors have gone up astronomically. Um, but it, it seems like there hasn't been that return to equilibrium that you're supposed to see, which is basically what you were describing, kind of an economic collapse, which some would describe as maybe not a bad thing, because if, if the system that's become so broken and so corrupt and so massive, this Leviathan, if it were to collapse and you had to rebuild from an equilibrium, you would return back basically to a better place. Obviously, that, that's a long path that paved with a lot of blood and treasure and, and misery. But that's one view. People are like, just speed up the collapse. So that's one thing I want to talk about, the hyperinflation thing. The second thing that you also brought up is kind of like, where is the libertarian response to these social and cultural issues, mm-hmm. which are very much important? There seems to be none. And if I mean, obviously, I'm talking more about like the Lawbergs, that when you see the BLM, when you see the rise of Marxism, when you see the rise of Antifa, where you see the rise of lawlessness, social media issue, yeah, you know, and social media issue, for example, the libertarians are known to be found. I'm glad I'm glad you brought up social media issue because one issue that I've been butting heads with many so-called libertarians on has been Section 230. Now, my view is that Section 230 is a government-granted privilege to one sector of the economy, that these internet monopolies uh, or big tech enterprises are given a certain privilege, which is namely they are protected uh, they are giving a lib- They are protected from liability uh, in the courts based on what they may publish or what they may say if they act a certain way. But they're not acting a certain way. They are acting as publishers because they are editorializing. So thus, that government privilege should be revoked. But for some reason, there are these Koch-funded libertarians who say, oh, it's not a privilege to begin with. But how could it not be a privilege if it's only given to one sector of the economy and not others? Not to mention that even if you lived in a pure libertarian society, you would still have courts of law and you would still have courts adjudicating things like defamation, things like fraud, things like, you know, all the types of things that they, these companies could be held liable for if 230 didn't exist. So those are three buckets. I don't know which one you want to take first, the social media, the hyperinflation or the cultural social issues. Right. So um, let's do social media first. And, you know, um, uh, Professor, if- Michael, Professor Michael Rechtenwald gave Great guy. Uh, yeah, he gave a compelling speech at the Mises Institute, which is really the last bastion of, um, of like good libertarianism. And, you know, even, even that, that label libertarian has basically been dropped by the president of the Mises Institute, Jeff Dice, who, good. who has, he's got some great, I mean, he's one of the best out there, um, with his analysis of the national psychosis, which was the election. And so, yeah, um, if you are, if you think there's no hope for, you know, the, libertarians the people in the movement i i point you to the mises institute i just had tho bishop on my show recently great guy i want him on as well yeah okay so um on the social media question michael rechtenwald who's now uh associate now associated with the mises institute he really draws into the history of these great uh big corporations and how they got their startup funds from the cia and so very interesting history to look at there and 
you know, I'm actually listening. I'm in the middle of uh, the Death to Tyrants podcast episode with Rechtenwald on there. And Death to Tyrants podcast is just another example of what you and I are talking about, which is this libertarian, uh, you know, really finding their footing in in the world that, that we uh, see today. So don't count us out yet. But um, so, you know, as far as 230 goes, Gavin, I am not a lawyer. I, you know, maybe, you know, some smart lawyers. I need to do my own research, you know, because I don't want to cut off our nose to spite our face kind of thing. I don't want to, um, you know, have um, have 230 go out and that, you know, uh, maybe it does take down Facebook and Twitter, but it also takes down you and me because people leave a comment in our in our show. And, you know, maybe that maybe that hurts us to be held responsible. I don't know. It's just a a question that I have. But I do think I'll just say this. you know, in, in terms of um, like being open to working with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to come in and Elizabeth Warren to come and break up these big uh, corporations. If we if we sort of had a, a clear horizon on sort of what was next, a follow up step in, in terms of, um, you know, uh, bringing a sense of freedom and and transparency and, and you know, um, access to everyone on these platforms then I think there is a role for the state to become to become involved because really it is involved. There's no escaping it. These are arms of the state. And so if we can use that to our advantage, then it's it's legitimate going after um, Amazon, Google, Facebook, what have you. That's um, a very interesting it, point that you yeah. don't hear a lot because many people tried to deny that the state is already so intertwined in many of these facets of our life, and they're, it's it's you're not going to be able to get them untangled. You're ra- but you it would be a lot easier to have it be somewhat of a better, uh, somewhat acting like a force for good, or at least make things, make some sort of improvements rather than, you know, this sort of, you know, esoteric discussion about, you know, eliminating the state altogether. I mean, again, it's all about the piecemeal part of it. And it's all about, you know, if you're willing to accept small victories, small battles, rather than it's either the whole thing or nothing. Um, And Mm. it's with 230, for example, I mean, you know, People will make the argument that it'll bring down everyone. I, I disagree. The people that would be most at risk are these big tech companies who have who have been just so blatant in what they've been doing in terms of editorializing. They would be the first to go down because they have the most to lose and they have the most money to give if it were to come to a settlement or it were to come to some kind of uh, adjudication. But you know, if if we can't first declare that what they're doing is at least taking advantage of a government privilege and it's not they're not operating in a free market then i would i was hoping that more libertarians would be on that train wagon but when i argue with them they all basically have it's it's the old montage they're all pro-business they're not pro-market and i see a lot of libertarians particularly those of the beltway have become just basically pro-business shills they're not pro-market shills because if they were pro-market they would say okay why does only this subset of companies have this privilege and no one else Instead, they're saying, oh, no, we need to give this set of businesses this privilege because it'll help them. That's that's not that was never a libertarian approach. No. When I was in the libertarian circles, I always remember the difference between pro-business, pro-market. What do you make of that distinction? Right. And I mean, clearly, clearly, we have to you know, really take the fight to these 
these uh, you know, powerly controlled institutions that are just taking it to us and we're getting nothing in return. I mean, um, all even even tax breaks in some instances uh, should probably be lifted. And, you know, I understand uh, getting rid of a tax break is sort of a tax increase. But, um, you know, I think even we could uh, we could get to uh, uh, some compromises with with the populist left on some of those points, because, you okay. um, you know, it really is about pitting power versus power at some level. I mean, um, you know, in terms of what I was speaking about, bringing the federal government to the to the doorsteps of of these gigantic deep state tied corporations, um, that is akin to me sort of using the state and local governments against the federal government when the federal government is is in you know in um, encroaching on our liberties. So, it is a matter of thinking about pitting power versus power. And, you know, you cannot, uh, again, I say this, you cannot um, separate yourself from the world. I mean, you, you cannot say that I am, a, I am clean, I wash my hands of this, um, because what, you're, you're spending Federal Reserve notes, and so that, therefore you endorse everything the Federal Reserve course, does, you know. So, so, so you're in the arena, you're in the yeah. arena, and it's, and it's a matter of, um, you know, are you going to make, are you going to make a move? You know, which way are you going to go? Which side are you going to take in a sense? And so, yes, we can pit power versus power in that way. That is the only way to limit power. That's the only way to, um, you know, gain it uh, enough for yourself to, you know, um, shield yourself from your enemies. It's not going to happen in this abstract uh, way where people think they can look at a piece of paper and say, oh, well, Amazon's a private company and the, um, you know, whatever it would be, some some commission in the government is the is the state, and that's some clear line there. They're really and, that, and they're really not. And that, that's a good that's a good point. Many of these massive corporations are so embedded and intertwined with our government to view them in this kind of just you know, uh, this view that they're just a private company, and you're just looking at like an economic chart or an economic theory. It's just incorrect because that's not how they operate. That's not what reality is, and you have to treat them differently. But I also want to touch on a few other topics. Let's let's run into hyperinflation real quick because this was always something always okay. interesting to me. The balance sheet has exploded. The amount of money being spent is insane. We've never. I mean, obviously, you can point to some areas where inflation has happened, where there has been uh, some. I mean, obviously, purchasing power has been stagnant. I mean, you could just look at it. It's impossible to start a family these days. It's very hard. And depending on where you are, uh, you know, you need two incomes to support, you know, the lifestyle Absolutely. to not to barely support the lifestyle that someone 50 years ago. So there has been inflation. It, it, it's it's obviously not sh- uh, shown in the government's numbers because they, they know how to cook the books and they obviously, uh, you know, mess around with the CPI and all that stuff. But where is sort of this kind of Weimar-esque, you know, uh, you know, uh, running out of the banks with, you know, money flowing everywhere because money is just completely devaluing the kind of Zimbabwe style yeah. thing you would expect. I mean, I, I understand we're still the reserve currency. There's still a lot of money in circulation. Not all of the money they print is in circulation, but you would think with everything we've always, we've, we've been taught through, you know, kind of maybe Austrian economics or whatever other school of economics you may ascribe to that there should be something more happening, but that doesn't quite seem to be happening. Why is that? Oh, well, you are not asking the right person, Gavin. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, my take on it is, um, you know, I am always trying to learn more and be on me on the edge of, um, where the intellectuals are on this uh, question. And there's different opinions, you know, Peter Schiff, who, you know, quite frankly, sells a lot of gold and silver, yeah. um, has his ideas of where the market's going. And someone like Bob Murphy 
has his opinions. And these are both very smart guys that everyone should listen to. And so, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know uh, when the crack up is coming. Uh, but you but, do think it's coming. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that, like, at you know, we just look at what happened under COVID in 2020. I mean, it didn't take much to get people to panic and go out and freak out. So, you know, it could take uh, many, many different shapes or forms that we can't even foresee right now. So when I talk about a crack up, it's a total, it's a, it's a total, um, you know, just dispensation of all trust in the society. You know, there's no linkage. It's just whether or not, you're you're gonna uh, be on on the chopping block of the state, whether or not you're an enemy of the state, and um, people who are looting and people who are you know setting fires and committing arson and destroying cities found out this year that um, for the most part they were really on the side of this new great reset uh, state right. that that's coming in, and so you know what is there going to be a dollar collapse that, that makes crazy and that, you know, creates chaos in the society? I mean, we've had chaos in the society. Maybe not, you know, maybe, uh, maybe one day we'll look back and say, uh, Oh, remember those pie in the sky day, you know, in 2020. Yeah. In 2020 was, you know, only a few people got killed or, or something, <laughs> but, um, so maybe it'll get worse. We don't know. But, you know, I do think it just as far as the money question goes, you cannot rule out hyperinflation. It's like, no. I feel like as soon as you do, then that's when it's going to happen, right? Like as soon as you say, right. oh, it can't happen here, that's when it'll happen. So I would just say, you know, be be um, cautious and, and hold some hard money, hold some cryptocurrency, hold, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, make sure that you're prepared, like have have groceries stocked up, have something, right? And and that should give you some peace of mind. And And, you know, it's all about it's all about just being prepared for some societal unrest. And that again is why I go back to, you know, us revivifying and rebuilding our local um, attachments. And, yeah. you know, if you're not, if you're not a part of your community, either move or, um, you know, get involved or, or help or be, you know, be someone that, that has a purpose in your community and that your community uh, can uh, value that. And, you know, that, that is, you know, goes a very long way. And so, that's a great segue, though, because I want to touch on one last topic before yeah. we wrap up. It's kind mm. of uh, where the libertarian response has been to the social and cultural issues. Right. And I also want to tie in you know, this whole great reset that we're talking about, which is all tied into this massive globalism. And a lot of libertarians seem to have really cheered on globalism. You know, they're free trade absolutists. They think that, you know, that they promote kind of like a borderless society. But really, they're playing, in my view, useful idiots for these global elites who want to create a one world government where they want the most form of centralization. And actually, globalism is just another term for mass centralization. And if you really want to return to a decentralized society, you're going to need to have borders. You're going to need to have uh, more respect for national sovereignty. You're going to need to have federalism. You need to have more all the communal type of approaches you're talking about, all of which get destroyed when all we do is promote policies, whether it's mass migration, whether it's unrestricted free trade, all of which would, which enrich these kind of quasi-state globalist corporations. These are all things that the old left used to talk about. I mean, maybe they still talk about it in some circles on the, on the populist left that you mentioned, but it seems like libertarians have basically just gone out to dry on these issues and said, oh, well, free trade is good. Immigration's good. Uh, you know, immigration is just like uh, any other importation of goods, even though you're talking about actual human beings with culture, with views, with opinions, etc. And you're not just talking about like bushels of grain or, or, or trinkets or widgets or whatever. So 
that was a lot kind of packed in, but let's, okay. where do you, where do you stand on those issues and, and the libertarians lack of a response to them? Right. So the, the, the libertarian, you know, I, I have these faults in me that I have to overcome sometimes. I mean, years ago when black lives matter first came up, I saw, okay, people on one side of the line, cops on the other side of the line, people state, okay, I guess I side with Black Lives Matter, right? And that right. was just an instinctual thing. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and hear them out. And I, I had sort of learned my lesson of this through the Tea Party and, and Occupy Wall Street. You know, I'm going to give these sides the benefit of the doubt and, and ultimately be disappointed, right? Black Lives Matter was like another level where very quickly I caught on and realized yep. that this was... um uh, deeper. Yeah, it's absolutely anti-libertarian. These people will kill us, okay? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, at least kill our livelihood and, you know, um, and not, not rebuild anything, uh, right. in, in return. So, um, I think the quickest, easiest way to answer this sort of question about libertarians and the social issues, you know, um, the wokeness, the, the, you know, the trans, whatever, uh, you know, the LGBTQ, la, la, la stuff. It's like, I, I definitely take a more traditional approach and what I would say to those who don't is like, first of all, do you think that you're just a blank slate? Like, really? You think you were the world is your is a blank slate? You you think you just came here uh, uh, like dropped by a stork, like on a cloud? I mean, what 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 world do you think you live in? Because right. to me, you're a part of the world. You you are born into a family. You're born into a country. You're born into you know these things are not absolutely static and never changing, but in terms of how they evolve and how they change, it's um, it's a matter of, of trade offs like everything else. And right. so you know to come in and say that my identity is who I say and I choose my own pronouns and you better follow it because it's my choice and not yours. It's just a total uh, misunderstanding of what society is. And it's a rejection and, of objective reality. Like at what point, I mean, it could get really deeply philosophical. At what point yeah. can you just put your foot down? And we're not even talking politics here and just be like, no, there are objective facts. There is biological sex. These are, these are facts. This is science. I mean, I hate yeah. to use that phrase now because the no, left I know. hates and, it. But yeah. And, and just to say, it's like, um, I, I just, I think that um, Robert Nisbet in the book, The Quest for Community, he really helps um, you know, understand. And and what I'm getting at here is like, you know, the Rothbardians, the libertarians of that sect know that we want to put society over the state. We 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 do not uh, hold the state in re any regard whatsoever, low or high. And we want to get rid of the state. But why? Why? Right. And the question why is because society and what is society? Well, let me just read this quote from uh, Nisbet's uh, quest for community. He says, the individual alone is powerless. Individual will and memory, apart from the reinforcement of associative tradition, are weak and ephemeral. How well the totalitarian rulers know it. And so the lesson from this, Gavin, is that the state Yes, the state is at war with you. There used to be an old bumper sticker. It's not the left versus right. It's the state versus you. And in some sense, yes, the state is after you. But you know what? The state really needs individuals. The state lives off of individuals. It requires individuals. And that's why, you know, the, the state is pouring in individuals into the United States at record numbers. Um, so the state has no problem with individuals per se. It's it's. 
it's it's uh, attachments. Okay, the individual alone is powerless, as Robert Nisbet writes, and and really. What's um, what's powerful is our individuals coming together in a community, in yep. coming together in institutional bonds, in coming together in things that last the test of time beyond the individual. And so, um, all the things you know, that the you left can is break, trying to destroy yeah. with COVID right now, and, all the, the, and the state as long as as long as the individual is uh, sort of tantalized with this. Uh, state-sanctioned mode of freedom, which is all of this degeneracy, uh, then yeah, the state doesn't care like about your freedom. It's not going to encroach on that freedom. Okay, the state's going to encroach on the freedom that, that you exercise that you exercise to build the society that you wish for your children. Okay, yep. the state the state wants to control um, you, but it, it even deeper than that, it wants to control your attachments to others and make you. Make make its attachment to the state, uh, make your attachment to the state the only one that matters. And so now you do see people who put the state above their families, put the state above their communities and go out and rat out on people. I mean, you had uh, Libertarianism Inc. coming out and, and going nuts on Thomas Massey in my newsletter. I highlighted that. And so um, I, I tried through my newsletter and through my podcast to just highlight these inner wars a little bit in the libertarian side of things just to try and wake up more people and be like, you know, you can still, you can still get out. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. You know, we'll welcome you with open arms. It's fine. Just come into this bigger tent fold of this dissident, right? uh, This paleo conservative, paleo libertarian, right? And uh, this populist nationalist, right? And that's where, you know, the, the future is and where you can have a shot at building a libertarian order. Okay. But at the, at the local level, I mean, you made some great points there. I mean, with the love of state trumping all of it. I mean, and, and like you said, the powers that be only care, uh, will let you do whatever you want, any kind of degenerate thing. Uh, they, they don't care about that freedom. In fact, they probably want to encourage that, mm-hmm. uh, just because, you know, it'll help them maintain power more. But the stuff that really matters, the stuff that actually, uh, takes uh, chips away at their foundation of power and control that's off limits and that's where they draw the line um but i think that's an interesting distinction but i i think we ended on a good note here i think this was interesting we covered a lot of ground uh, a lot of uh, philosophical economic topics i'm really glad uh you came on we ran about a little over but i want to uh, give the last word to Sorry you about that. <laughs> no no this was good i i i pushed it cuz i wanted to cover a few more topics before uh even though we hit the 30 minute mark but it's fine um i'm going to give the last word to you and if you want to just plug in uh, where everyone can follow you. And also for everyone listening, uh, this is the Wax, the WaxCast podcast, episode two. Uh, we stream whenever I'm available, uh, no set schedule. And we are joined by Nick Hancock. Nick, take it away. NickHancock.com, Nick underscore Hancock. I do have a Substack that's totally free. So NickHancock.substack.com for my newsletter. And I, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a little something for everyone out there. But yeah, the podcast on Spotify and iTunes everywhere is Come Home America with Nick Hancock. And also look out for Order and Liberty with Jose Nino and Nick Hancock. Thanks, Gavin. No, thank you, Nick. And hopefully we'll get Jose on. He's another great friend of mine. So thank you again and uh, tune in for our next episode. It could come uh, any minute now. We have no idea what's going on here at WaxCast. Thank you, guys.